and welcome to Under the Grid, the podcast exploring the history of Milton Keynes from the collections team at Milton Keynes Museum. We delve deep and not so deep into time to tell you some of our favourite things about the area and share our discoveries from working at the museum. I'm Catherine, I'm the archivist. I'm Sarah, I'm the collections officer. And I'm Tabitha, I'm the archaeology curator and collections conservator. this episode we are going to be talking about all the Bradwells, um, so New Bradwell, Bradwell Village, Bradwell Abbey, um, they're all sort of in the north, northwest of Milton Keynes really, Bradwell Village certainly is sort of northwest of central Milton Keynes, New Bradwell sort of north of Bradwell and then Bradwell Abbey is to the west of Bradwell Village. They needed to be more imaginative when they came up with these names. Too yes. many Bradwells. Too many Bradwells, indeed. Um, so, who's going to start us off? Is it Tabby today? I think so. I think we decided we do this one chronologically. Okay. So well, archaeology first. If we're doing things chronologically, I will always be first. Yes. Because the archaeology will always be earlier. <laughs> um, and that's actually quite fair, because I'm going to be talking about New Bradwell today and the Bronze Age. So in 1879 at New Bradwell, a Bronze Age hoard of weapons was found in, quote, a deep cyst filled with black earth, where nowadays stands the County Arms Hotel, which I tried to Google Maps this and I couldn't find it, but I did find a map that said where it should be. So I don't know if maybe this hotel doesn't exist anymore and the publication I was reading, it existed when that publication was made. Could be. I think the County Arms is on was on Newport Road? Yeah, I was looking on Newport Road, but um, I don't know, couldn't see it for some reason. I think it's just a normal house now. Okay. A lot of places in New Bradwell have sort of closed down, I think, like that. Well, if you live in that house, you had some Bronze Age stuff underneath your house. Cool. <laughs> it's better than bones in Passenum. Yes. better than Definitely. bones in Um, So the hoard comprised of nine socketed axes, three broken axes, one pal stave, two spearheads, and a leaf-shaped sword which had broken into four pieces. What's a pal stave? A pal stave is kind of like a different type of axe head. So a lot of axes. Yeah, just, just a ton of axes. So these finds were taken to the British Museum where they underwent conservation and they're now back home, home at the Milton Keynes Museum. Yay. These objects are significant and so will absolutely go on display in the upcoming ancient galleries. But the key question here is why are they significant? Um, yes. So definitely I'm using my propaganda of, oh, we're talking about Bradwell to actually just talk about New Bronze. Bronze Age hordes. Um, thank it's you, fine. New Bradwell, for having a find. So there's two reasons for their significance. First off, this is a lot of metal. We don't know the exact date of the hoard, and the Bronze Age is a decent span of time, but just because it was called the Bronze Age, it did not mean that bronze was a ubiquitous material. Bronze object, especially weapons, were high status and rare, and this isn't one bronze object, this is 16 separate objects, including a sword, which is a lot of bronze. Oh wow. So to put this into perspective, when we get into the Iron Age, owning an iron sword is the equivalent to nowadays owning a very, very fancy sports car. So think of the same, but maybe even more for a high status bronze sword. This is not an object that everyone is going to have. This isn't even an object that everyone who's high status is going to have. This is a very, very specific object to actually own. 
So these objects are worth a lot in that um, period. So why were they buried? There's a lot of work that's been done on burial hoards in Bronze Age Europe, and especially looking at patterns in Bronze Age England of where things were buried. Um, so this discussion is easier when you know at least which part of the Bronze Age the hoard comes from, early, middle or late. Unfortunately, we don't have that luxury because when this object was found, that kind of wasn't important to work out. So this black earth that this cyst was in, we don't have soil samples or anything like that because, again, it's 1879. Um, so what's going on in the Bronze Age of Milton Keynes? That's what we have to look at to really work out why this hoard might be significant. So we know from the Neolithic onwards that we have settlement at Stacey Bushes and we have one of the largest Bronze Age roundhouses in the country being built at Bancroft. Um, so we know that from the Neolithic onwards we have settlement and use in Wolverton because of the Cursus monument that we talked about before. So there's definitely people living and using this area during the Bronze Age, the broader area of Milton Keynes. Um, but then you have to look at what actually is a hoard. So a hoard is defined as a series of objects or tools owned by one person or by one group of people which has been deposited all at once over a period of time for a specific purpose. Um, and this purpose depends on the type of objects and the location of the hoard, and I'll outline some of those now to kind of get an idea. So hoards of complete objects, which show signs of use, could be hidden for the purpose of future recovery. Uh, this reason is commonly used to explain coin hoards in the Iron Age and the Roman period, and even later. Think about it, you don't have banks, you don't have safes, and if your land is threatened and you need to leave quickly, burying something important or expensive that you're not going to take with you makes sense. You can come back to it. You know where it is. Um, but archaeologists are kind of moving away from this idea now because while it holds true for some cases, it is very much an oversimplification. Um, alternatively, hordes of complete but unused objects may represent a trader or a merchant's cash for distribution. So again, if you're living in a roundhouse, you don't have a lock on your door, right? Um, so you don't want to put all of your stock that you're selling in one place because you need to pay people to guard it and also burying things in different places is going to help pre um, protect your investments. Um, but lastly, the other type of hoard is hoards of broken objects, which may represent metal workers' stashes. So if you have your roundhouse where you live in and then you have your building where you work, if you're working with um, bronze that you need to remelt down and reshape, you're not going to have all of that in one place because the raw material is really valuable. So people might break in to actually just take the material. So if you know you're working with one lot of it now, the rest of it, you're going to bury it in the ground so people don't know it's there. They're not going to take it. And then you go back to it. And we do see that in the Iron Age as well. I think Wavenden Gates has some um, clearly disused bronze which has been buried but buried near a metal workers forge so it's clearly a case of they're going to use that later or they were going to um, but these are really practical reasons for burying hordes there are cultural reasons as well so for instance in the uk we find um, bodiless burials are a particular phenomenon in the bronze age so it's an urn with no cremation but it's got personal items buried in it and so it's more of a, a memorial or a cenotaph and this is something that we see even in Buckinghamshire. Um, archaeologists now argue that um, actually these memorial burials might not even represent an, a, a person, but rather be a memorial to a community or even a family. Um, so looking rather than just focusing on an individual, a actually being 
a, um, a cenotaph for a large number of people um, to kind of show their mark on the landscape is what we might think. Um, but then you have religious deposits. So these are commonly found around water, but not always. And they include a range of objects, complete, new, used, broken, but most often broken, which appear to be part of a religious or quote-unquote ritual practice. My favourite word. Of course. Um, and this process continues into the Roman period, and it's attested as something both the Romans and pre-Roman cultures did in textual evidence as well as archaeological. Um, now there's one more theory which I recently uh, did find out about, and I thought it was too funky not to mention. So we don't know a lot about ancient economics. Um, it's tough to work out the value of something in societies which don't have a currency as we know it. They don't have coinage. How do you understand the value of something? Um, and without textual evidence, that's even harder. But in all forms of society, if something is scarce, then it has higher value. That's just kind of a, an obvious statement. So in Bronze Age society, you have a small ruling class, which is normally formed of warriors. And the idea of hiding objects of high value may have been done to actually prevent other members of society from gaining status through ownership of these weapons, or would have kept the ownership of these objects as a high status role only to certain people, almost like an invite-only club. Um, in Lincolnshire, for example, we have a correlation between higher depositions of weapons and better agricultural soil, which may indicate a wealthier tribe. Um, the idea of creating scarcity or alienation as a mode of power and how that ties into economics is an interesting one. Um, and this does tie into religious deposition practice, if you think about it. A gift to the god is a gift which cannot be returned. And therefore it's a gift which actually increases your social prestige. You now have a connection to the god that other people don't because they can't give those same objects to the gods. Um, and because ancient religion was inherently public and communal, everyone in your community knew that you were the person doing this. Um, so what does all this mean for the new Bradwell deposit? Um, our hoard is weird because it contains both broken and complete objects, so that doesn't really help us put it into one category or another. Um, it was also described as being found in a deep cyst. So cysts are normally uh, funerary cuts, so this could potentially be a bodiless burial. Um, but also religious deposits were buried very deep in the ground, um, as opposed to bodiless burials which seem to be more shallow, and they also contain pottery as well. Um, what complicates the issue more is that New Bradwell, and especially Newport Road, is actually really close to the River Ouse. Um, and this is important because religious deposits were actually closer to rivers than other deposits. And lastly, we don't know of a Bronze Age settlement in New Bradwell. So all we have is the closest settlement in Bancroft, which has a Bronze Age cemetery, um, and that's too far away for this to be a bodiless burial or some kind of stash for metalworking. But you have to remember that landscape is really important to determining how um, people in the Bronze Age lived. So rivers are prominent natural barriers in the landscape. Um, which may be known to many people in the surrounding area. So what's more likely here is that a river is actually a really suitable location for displays of competitive consumption, highly visible acts of deposition which serve to define and reinforce physical and social boundaries between different communities who are going to occupy territory on different sides of the river. So with this information in mind, I would actually argue that these objects from New Bradwell 
fit into this category of being a display of power or a religious deposit. It might be that someone living, that the community living in Bancroft, for instance, or Stacey Bushes, Bradwell was their delineation of their area, and they were using that new Bradwell boundary with the river to mark their territory, to make these processions and these religious deposits so that other people in the area knew, oh, they're really wealthy. Look at all those objects that they just they just deposited to their gods on their boundary marker. And I think that's quite an interesting way to, um, to look at it. Not saying that that's the correct way to interpret this, but it's perhaps a bit more interesting than Ah, just burying some objects to come back to it later. Um, so would they have like made a big show of burying these objects and been like maybe invited other people from different territories and gone look what we're doing? Uh, we are burying all this good stuff, and they would actually like bury it and then make a big thing about it. So there's no evidence to say yes or no firmly, but I think we have to we have to assume that right. Um, because again, religious processions are always public and always very big events, like the Cursus Monument, the Neolithic Monument, that is built for people to process through, it's built for people to use. So we have to assume that everything that's happening religiously is a community activity. So I don't think it would be far off the mark, especially in the Bronze Age where you have a lot of political turbulence, to actually see these kinds of deposition events as, yeah, we'll invite you over, look how rich we are, you don't want to mess with us, this is our border, I am marking our territory, don't you dare cross over here. Mm -hmm. But again, it's a cool theory, but there's no actual evidence because there's no writing. <laughs> yeah, it seems like context is really everything, isn't it? Like, yeah. if you just find something that's been taken out of any other context you you've got nothing to go on have you which is really really sad exactly and that's why these these hordes that are either metal detected or are found over a hundred years ago are so fascinating but so difficult to deal with because there is no evidence um i mean that's why the portable antiquity scheme uh, program is really important because if you ever find something like that you find a hoard in in this kind of environment people need to know where you found it because they need to go back to look for those context clues. What from the soil that those these finds came out of are we missing because we weren't able to actually get the soil? And even with the conservation, um, if you look at the sword that we have in the museum, which you will be able to eventually, it doesn't look broken. Because when it was conserved, it was conserved in a time period where the idea was to make objects whole. So without this information, I had no idea that sword was broken because unless I x-rayed it, you would not be able to see the breaks. And that's really important to know. Displaying a whole Bronze Age sword is completely different to displaying a broken one because they mean completely different things. And yeah. you're right, it's all about context and it's trying to piece together that context from other information that we have. And that's what makes that new Bradwell hoard so interesting. And it shows how history is always like an iterative process where you're always learning you're always changing your views you know it's not fixed points in time it's always learning new things and you know research being done and new kind of viewpoints are always coming to light that you have to kind of uh, take on board and accept and incorporate into your interpretations absolutely and then somebody finds another horde and you have to rewrite everything and come up with new theories <laughs> Yep. <laughs> so I'm going to move to the Bradwell Abbey area 
and talk about the paintings in the Chapel of St Mary. And it's funny because we think of the area we now know as Bradwell Abbey as being very separate from the village of Bradwell. And I think this is for two reasons. Um, so because of the new town's grid square structure, um, it sort of delineates grid squares um, by the grid roads and they're all very like different and separate communities. Um, but when they created that grid square structure, they used existing um, features that were already in the designated area. And one of these was the railway line, which runs right at the eastern end um, of Bradwell Abbey, and then Bradwell Village is on the other side. So construction of the railway line started in the 1830s, and the section that runs through what we now know as Milton Keynes opened in 1838. And that actually provided a barrier between Bradwell Village and the area of Bradwell Abbey. However, before this, there's 700 years of only like um, parishional separation between the areas. Like that's not a word, but I've just used it's it. It's a good word. <laughs> I've used yeah. it here to sort of say they were in separate parishes, but geographically they were quite connected up until like this, this point, the railway kind of cut them off. Um, so just a very quick bit of background on Bradwell Abbey and the chapel. It's not in fact an abbey, um, but it's a priory. And it was founded around 1150 and was run by Benedictine monks. So they're the ones um, who wear the black habits. And the chapel is the only building that survives intact from the priory time. And the chapel was built in the mid 14th century. The story goes that the priory had fallen on hard times and wasn't doing very well when one of the monks discovered that a statue of St Mary on the external wall of the priory had healing powers. Mm. Well timed. <laughs> yes. Very well timed. Um, word of this miracle spread and the chapel became a pilgrimage site. So what would happen then would be worshippers would bring along offerings to the statue and the, and the priory in um, return for help and assistance with their ailments and their problems. The chapel was constructed around the niche that contained the miracle statue to allow more easy access for lay people and so you know the priory could charge people to come in. And it contains some nationally important wall paintings so I thought I'd tell you a bit about these. Please. There are eight wall paintings that can be identified with any certainty and they're mostly coming from the life of St Mary. Now Mary in the Catholic Church is the mother of Jesus Christ, i.e. the mother of God. And importantly for our pilgrimage site, Catholics do not believe that Mary answers prayers. They believe that she will champion prayers with God on behalf of worshippers. So that's called like intercession. She's an intercessor for um, people. And one of the most prominent paintings in the chapel is of Mary's mother, Anne. And she is likely teaching Mary to read. The painting doesn't have a book in it, but the figures are in similar poses to other paintings that depict the same act. Anne is wearing a dark coloured robe and a wimple, and she has both her hands out in front of her, palms facing each other. And Mary is a smaller figure below her, and we can only see her head and her hands now. Um, she has a head of very curly hair and her hands are held out in the same fashion as Anne's. So over time the paintings will have faded and deteriorated um, and a lot of them are kind of 
lost a little bit now, so they're a bit difficult to see. The other painting that is fairly easy to see and identify is the Christian belief of Annunciation. So this is where the angel Gabriel appears before Mary to announce that she will bear the Son of God. So in the painting you've got angel Gabriel saying to Mary, you're gonna bear the Son of God. She's like, okay, cool. Got this. <laughs> <laughs> no problem. No problem. Pop it in my diary. No biggie. <laughs> Nine months from now, it's fine. Um, and then there are two more paintings that both feature two figures and these are likely to be one of Joachim and Anne who were Mary's parents um, and therefore grandparents to Jesus, <laughs> grandparents to God and one of Mary and her cousin Elizabeth who was the mother of John the Baptist. And there's one more painting that features Mary and she is depicted with Saint Michael who is an angel in Catholic beliefs and one of whose jobs was to weigh souls before they're granted entry to heaven. And the painting depicts Michael with scales weighing his souls out before they get into heaven. And Mary is there <clears throat> to intercede on behalf of the deceased. So she is kind of putting in a good word for people, basically. And this kind of painting would be encouraging pilgrims to visit the site and to bring offerings for that intercession. So for putting in a good word, we'll give you some money or some kind of valuable thing that we've got. The last religious scene is one that is very difficult to make out now and we don't even have very good pictures of it. It shows the mocking of Christ. Jesus is depicted in only a loincloth whilst um, most likely Roman soldiers mock him after his condemnation by the emperor and that one yeah so that one is extremely faded and you know the chapel roof for quite a long time was not very good and you know uh, rain would get in and things like that so after sort of 600 years or so they're they're a bit on a bit difficult to see and there are two more paintings to talk about and one is unique in medieval english wall paintings it shows four people kneeling and from their clothes and the fact that they are holding staffs we can interpret that they are pilgrims and as they kneel they're holding out objects which are symbols of their prayers so one has a crutch or a staff possibly in thanks for a cure one holds a head that will have been representing like a wax or a wooden head and I remember the first time I saw it I thought it was like hardcore that he'd brought a decapitated head along yeah <laughs> and then I read somewhere it's probably like a wax or a wooden head and I was like oh that makes much more sense the third figure holds the image of a figure kneeling in prayer and unfortunately the offering of the last pilgrim has been lost over time so we can't see that one now but as I said you know in English medieval wall paintings there's no other painting like this and the last painting is on the east wall of the chapel and it is a Stuart royal coat of arms. And this tells us something interesting. It tells us that the building was still being used for religious purposes, at least until and throughout the 1600s, because it was compulsory for churches to display the royal coat of arms under King Charles II, who reigned from 1660 until 1685. So one of the reasons we think that that building survived as the rest of the abbey 
the priory um, was destroyed is because the person who owned the land wanted to use it for religious purposes, for his worship. The local church would have been um, the one in Old Wolverton, so that's quite far for him to get to, or them to get to. Um, so he kind of kept it for his own personal worship. And you can come and see the paintings on the open days that are held by the City Discovery Centre. They look after the Bradwell Abbey site, um, and they're usually on the last Sunday of the month from May to September. Um, so I think the one in August should be the 28th, but uh, keep an eye out on the website for that. Um, it will definitely be open to the public for Heritage Open Days on Sunday the 11th of September when they hold their medieval fair. I think I've heard that you can see them better on a sunny day. Is that right? I heard you can see them better on a humid day. Okay. Maybe so, a sunny, humid day. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what the um, science of that is, but no. maybe caveat. No. No. Nope. <laughs> But there we go. That's the wall paintings. Interesting. Thank you. My favourite part of the wall paintings is the um, the M's, the M's everywhere. Yeah. Because when you look at really really old churches, you find um, M's carved into church walls. They're an apotropaic symbol for warding off evil, um, and then they get incorporated into just aesthetic design. So. Um, they still hold their, their apotropaic reasoning, um, but then it becomes more of just like a, a fashionable pattern to include as the background piece. And when I walked into the chapel, that that's the piece that stuck with me the most, is just how many of those symbols there were, because it is such a, uh, especially because of the chapel where you have the statue with the healing powers and everything, having this location where you have all of these symbols, warding off evil, inviting you in with all of these, these um, the, the cult side of Christianity almost uh, present and it was brilliant, absolutely fantastic. Yeah, and I think because it is the chapel of St Mary, like they really took on board like the M thing, didn't they? And like, yeah, let's plaster the wall with all these M's um, and then we'll be really holy and free from demons and things like that. That's what you want. Very holy. Okay, so I'm afraid I'm being quite tenuous with my Bradwell <laughs> connection. Um, I had a look, I always look to see what we have in the collection that goes with whatever our theme is. And most of the things that I found I'd already talked about peripherally, like the railway and things like that. But I did discover that um, a couple of years ago, last year, I, at some point in the fairly recent past, we took in a couple of quizzing gowns. And one of them, the Mr. Harry Stammers, was quizzed in. And he's kind of famous. Is he? He is. So I was intrigued that we have a quizzing gown for a kind of famous. Is he a Victorian celebrity? Well, I mean, kind of-ish. <laughs> he designed and made stained glass windows for churches and cathedrals oh. and things like that. And he was very well known for doing this. Um, and he and possibly one of his parents and his six, five siblings... Um, all got quizzed in this gown and at least his niece did as well so it's one of those really nice christening gowns that you get in the collection that lots of people have been christened like a family in. yes peace um, so I did some research on him he was born in London in 1902 and was the eldest of six children oh so not Victorian at all sorry sorry no <laughs> no I, I one just... year off 
I just went to Victorian times, <laughs> like, immediately. And I should have known, because I know all the dates, honestly. <laughs> I have done my research. It's not all written down in the script in front of me. Um, so, no, he wasn't a Victorian celebrity. At all. Post-Victorian celebrity. Um, his first job, aged about 14, was in a raincoat factory. But when he was 16, he got an apprenticeship at James Powell's and Sons, who are church furnishers, in their stained glass window division. And according to his son, and we have a copy of a letter he wrote to somebody about his father's life, he said that he, as far as he's aware, he wasn't actually interested in stained glass windows. He just wanted a job that enabled him to be creative and artistic. And it could have been pretty much anything. And it was just, he got this job working as an apprentice for stained glass windows. And he attended a lot of evening classes at St Martin's School of Art for many years to develop his skills. He married in 1930 a lady called Grace, who I think that she must have known him when they were children, because she says her earliest memories of his beautiful treble voice singing solos in church and playing the organ for Sunday school. And that seems to be a feature throughout his life, that he played the organ and sang in choirs and directed choirs and things. Conducted, not directed. I couldn't remember that word the other day. (laughs) In 1943, the family moved to Exeter, where he got a job as a draftsman for Whipples & Co, who another church furnishing and stained glass window company. But he also started to work freelance, and in 1945, a couple of years later, he was able to fulfil his dream of being a master craftsman, and he developed his own company. Um, And this allowed him to be really creative and come up with his own designs, because certainly working at Powell's, they were very conservative formulaic. It was very much... Off the, um, off the you, peg. Off the peg, thank you. And he had to use the same designs all up, over and over again. And it was around this time that the Dean of York contacted him. He'd first come of his work back in the 30s, and he invited him up to York to create a school of glass painting. So the whole family moved up to York, and they stayed there for 13 years. And York used to be a really big place for glass painting, stained glass windows. And the industry had died off, so they revived that. Um, but in 1960 his connection starts with Bradwell Excellent. and they purchased Bradwell House and I read one report which said he retired to Bradwell. Now I do not want his retirement because he continued to make stained glass windows. He had a studio, he employed five local people and they continued to work. That does not sound make. like retirement in any no. way shape or form. Um, and he lived there for about nine years. Uh, he unfortunately died in 1969. Um, but he played the organ at St. Lawrence's Church. And whilst here, he designed four bit church windows and other bits, two of which are in Bradwell's. So one in New Bradwell, one in Old Bradwell. Okay. Um, but according to his son, his artistic influences were really eclectic from Italian Renaissance masters to Henry Moore, Eric Gill, William Morris, and Emmett. And he had little time for any designers of stained glass windows who couldn't actually make the windows themselves. And he oh, felt okay. you had to ha- be able to make one and understand the process all the way through to be able to really make the good designs. Had to have that understanding. I think he's right. Yes, I would agree that it helps that if you can understand how to put a window together, then you'll be able to design the best one. Um, and his style was really varied. In York, it moved from the traditional classical style that had been forced to use to more angular styles with architectural motifs in the background. In 51, he developed the Festival of Britain style, um, which is simplified heavier graphical line work. 
um, bolder novel colours and he picked his colours that worked well with his design rather than the naturalistic. So a lot of the people in his windows are blue okay. because blue looked good. Um, and it varied from church to church so it wasn't like his style developed over time. So in Leeds he's got some with naturalistic light painted figures and at the same time he was designing some in Lincoln Cathedral with strong simple semi-abstract figures. He's got backgrounds full of architectural details in Acton that he designed in 56. Foliage in Glasgow Cathedral the same year. Crazy paving in York the year after. Um, and they've often got really powerful graphics and features. So there's one section of a window in Lincoln, St Michael's, which has alternating patterns with Lancaster bombers and searchlights, because that's a memorial window for the Second World War. Oh, he does sound really creative. Um, it's amazing, and his great strength point was his powerful use of colour and his masterly sparing line work. And he liked to emphasise the movement of figures when he did them. And one chap, J.E. Nugent's, in his obituary, described him as one of the finest stained glass artists of our generation, perhaps one of the most original designers we are likely to see for a long time. He was a delightful artist and a superb craftsman. So to give you some stats, because I do like a statistic, throughout his career he made about 180 windows. Of this, three were designed pre-1945, then he set up his independent company then. So really he designed 177 windows between 1945 and 1968, so in 23 years. Oh, wow. So that's an average of about seven and a half windows a year. Um, and 64 of these he designed after he supposedly retired to Mountain Keynes. Um, but one year he did 15 windows. And each window could take up to about three years from first being contacted by the church to actually it being installed. So you'd have to come up with a design plate, have to be approved by the church, and so on and so forth. Yeah. And these 180 windows were spread across about 133 churches and cathedrals, and also some colleges and hospitals as well. So it wasn't just churches and cathedrals. Most were in England, there were a few in Wales and Scotland, but he also designed one in Korea as well, so clearly his reputation spread. He thought about it. Yes. So, as I said, four in Mount Keynes. So, in St James's Church in New Bradwell, he did the West Window in 1965, and that's very figurative and abstract. Um, he did Rennie Lodge in Newport Pagnell, which is a hospital, and he did the Chapel Window in there in 65. That's got lots of animals on, that's really nice. Um, he did the All Saints Church, which is the Paris Church in Loughton, which is another abstract one, in 66. And he did St Lawrence's Church in Old Bradwell, um, which he reset in pre-existing window with lots of abstract design around the outside. He also did the gates at that church as well. So he didn't just design windows. Um, he did lots of painted panels throughout his career as well. He did the large hanging majestas for St Michael's College Wales and he did many Reredos paint panels as well. He even designed the spandrels for an astronomical clock in York Ooh, as well so he did loads. The gates at St Lawrence Church w were also produced by um, D.H. Roberts in Dean's Hangar so Dean's he would have like given them the designs and they would have made produced it. it. So really local. Nice and local. Um, there is a book about his work which you can purchase for about 80 to 90 pounds if you want a physical copy. But I did discover when I was feeling sad that I couldn't buy his book, that you can get a PDF version for 2.99, which I immediately purchased. And 
you can google his name if you don't want to buy the book but his windows are beautiful um, so it's well worth googling him and having a look at some of his work or visiting or visiting the churches. the churches yes they might be open for heritage open days they may well be i have a list if anybody wanted to know of all of the churches and all of the windows that he's designed because that was in the back of the book So that's it on the Bradwells for this time. Yes. I feel like there might be more to talk about at another time. But um, did you know this is our, like we've been doing this for a year now. Have we? So no this way. episode comes oh. out in August and we started September last year. Gosh. We've got 13 episodes, including the Halloween special. Yes. So, uh, yay. Well, thank you for still listening. Yeah, thank you. Please spread the word. Yes. Tell all your friends if you're enjoying the podcast. We want to do it for at least another year. <laughs> We've got enough topics for probably about another five years. So, yeah. Although, having said that, I cannot remember what we're doing next month. No idea. It'll be a surprise. Yes. Oh, is it free history? I don't know. Because it's Heritage Open Day. Could be. Might be free history, but who knows? Who knows? <laughs> Tune in next time to find out. Yes. That's it for this episode. If you've got an idea for a future topic you'd like us to feature, then get in touch with us via social media. We're at MK Museum on Twitter and Facebook and at Milton Keynes Museum on Instagram. Also, check out our website, miltonkeynesmuseum.org.uk.